and welcome to Altamar. I'm Muni Jensen. And Muni Jensen has a cold, and I'm Peter Schechter. We're here to navigate the rough waters of global politics like we do every other week. And today, our episode takes us to Glasgow, Scotland, where the world leaders, well, maybe I should say, oh, some of the world leaders are going to meet to discuss climate change. COP26 is coordinated by the United Nations, and its intention is to build a roadmap to save our planet. COP is the meeting that produced the Paris Accord five years ago, which resulted in a series of pledges and goals for the future of our planet, and that was all signed by top leaders. And today, after 18 months of COVID, and with turbulent geopolitical maps and problems all around the globe, we're going to discuss the urgency, the pitfalls, the hopes, the empty promises, and the opportunities that arise from this enormous convening. So, Peter, first of all, yes, rain or shine, I'm here on Altamar with a cold and everything. But first, let's just take a quick inventory of who is coming. We know Xi Jinping will jump on virtually. And to be fair, he's not left China since the pandemic began. Neither Putin nor the Iranian president are in attendance. And neither is Brazil's Bolsonaro or Mexico's AMLO. About half of the world population and many of those countries most responsible for environmental degradation will not have in-person representation this week. So who's there? Well, of course, Biden with 13 cabinet members and climate envoy John Kerry, many, many European leaders, the British royal family, the queen announced her absence from the event, and the new Israeli PM. A few presidents from Latin America, NGOs, consultants, business and opinion leaders, multilaterals, the worldwide media, and of course, these climate change ambulance chasers looking to land a contract or two. And Mooney, like everything else in today's turbulent world, COP is happening at a moment of enormous energy confusion. So right when this meeting is happening, energy prices, electricity, gas, heating are all spiraling out of control. There just isn't enough clean energy being produced in the world to make up the energy shortfall that we're all feeling today. And so we're witnessing this incredible dichotomy. On the one hand, Europe and the United States are vying for clean energy leadership. And on the other hand, the West is begging the Saudis and the Russians to increase their petroleum and gas output. I don't know, guys, but it just seems to me that COP is copping out on an equally important agenda item, which is what energy are we going to use to power our businesses and heat our homes as the world transitions, slowly transitions to clean energy? And let's just wait till spring. And that's my fear. After a winter of wild energy prices, the populists are going to have a field day with climate change. If the world is angry today, wait until families go through the winter, spending five or 10 times more on energy consumption. Already now, not everybody is thrilled about this climate event in Glasgow, which many people feel is full of contradictions. And actually it is. And Thea will talk about the youth's growing voice and if world leaders are taking this seriously. I'm Taya Ivanovich, and this is Taya Stick, where we take a look at social justice and youth issues. And youth issues are particularly important when it comes to climate change. Early in in October, hundreds of young people attended the first youth climate conference ahead of COP. It was held in Milan, Italy, and they presented their lists of demands for world leaders ahead of this UN meeting aimed at trying to avoid environmental devastation, basically. It's really impressive how loud the youth has been on climate change issues. And a prime example, of course, is Greta Thunberg. What is also interesting is how accepting world leaders are to their voices right now. 
Frans Timmermans, the executive vice president of the European Commission for the European Green Deal, said he would meet every day for the duration of COP26 with youth representatives for a check-in on how the meetings are going. And young people are not playing around. They're demanding inclusivity, rights for indigenous and marginalized groups when it comes to creating climate change policy. A major new UN poll predicted public pressure for bold climate change action from the world's major economies, and that would only likely strengthen from here on out, and the strongest demands coming from those under 18. I'm watching this conference very closely. How do you think it will all play out with the youth putting pressure on world leaders? Is there momentum right now from youth when it comes to tackling one of the world's most pressing problems? Tweet at Altamar Podcast and let me know. Thanks, Taya. And it's true, at Altamar, we're analyzing COP26 in a sort of mental split screen. On the one hand, we're watching how the leaders of the world are going to position themselves to discuss what has become the sexiest topic on the global table. I mean, every day in every newspaper around the world, this is the issue. And secondly, the results themselves, whether this type of meeting really yield results and concrete results, and how far have we come since the Paris 2015 meeting, and what priorities are within the climate change agenda? So to help us, we have Michael Jenkins, president and CEO of Forest Trends, who was also associate director for global security and sustainability program of the MacArthur Foundation, was senior forestry advisor to the World Bank, advisor to the USAID and other agencies. He's traveled and worked throughout Latin America, Asia and parts of Africa and speaks six languages, including Creole and Guarani, mostly spoken in Paraguay, along with Spanish and French and Portuguese. And I had just learned he is a childhood friend of Peter's. Michael has contributed to and authored numerous books and publications and won several prizes in his field. It's really great to have you with us, Michael. Thank you for joining us on Altamar. Thank you, Mooney, for having me. So what is your take on COP26? Are you optimistic that there will be concrete takeaways that will generate change? Or is this all mostly for show? I think we have to really remember that even just uh, two months ago, it wasn't clear that that there was going to be a cop and certainly not clear that it was going to be in person. So I think we just have to keep that in mind in terms of what the expectations are at COP. I do have some hopes that there are going to be some important steps forward. Just briefly, one of them is that um, the work we do and have historically done, which is about forests and nature-based solutions, uh, is really now on center stage. And there are commitments that are going to be made that that are going to be really important in terms of, of new financing for those issues. We'll also see more commitments coming out of the finance sector, which I think is really a critical piece of this equation when when they're looking at you know the impacts that investors are having on on the environment and 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 social issues also that's going to be a very important one we'll see an incredibly important presence at the cop from indigenous peoples and local communities that's going to be a, a, a much larger presence and a much bigger issue than it's been in the past so I think those are all very tangible things, but I think we need to remember that this is just a place in time on the continuum of our work around addressing climate issues. And what does success look like after this is over? What would have been like the ideal takeaway? Because we know it's about raising awareness of kind of reporting on the 
Paris Agreement promises and create or continue to try to create consensus. There's a lot of talk about funding climate change initiatives for the developing world. What is the definition of success after this? Yeah, well, again, if you think about the the COP process, so we're in COP26, and um, five years ago at Paris, there was a very important COP when commitments were made. They're called NDCs, Nationally Determined Contributions, country by country. And the important thing there was they're, they're kind of voluntary and they were aspirational. And what we're hoping comes out of this event is a a doubling down on those and actually ratcheting up on those commitments, you know, and and we're seeing a little bit of that already with uh, Saudi Arabia announcing that they're going to be net zero by 2050. Those kinds of commitments make those NDCs stronger and stronger in terms of real action. Michael, you mentioned that this is a moment in time on a continuum, and but it's a weird moment. And it's a worrisome moment for those of us who support moving as fast as possible on the climate continuum, which is it's a moment in which gas and energy prices are going through the roof. And I'm just worried about sort of the climate change and, and the, the environmental movement have faced so many political difficulties. And I'm just worried that come springtime, we're going to be facing a renewed populist reaction to a lot of this because they're going to say, well, look at the, we're on this climate change thing and look at where energy prices have gone. How do we fight back against these type of populist pressures? Yeah. So, so Peter, that is what I would say is the trillion dollar question really is, um, you know, the transition that we're going to have to go through in a really pretty rapid way around energy and the energy sources we use and the prices of that energy. I've heard so many times the the folks in the energy sector argue that the use of coal allowed us to pull a billion people out of poverty and, and create energy for the world. And that's true. But right now, if we continue down that path, we're going to we're going to snuff out the planet. So so we can't use that going forward. I think we're going to need to be really creative in terms of the the shifts that we make and thinking about the full array of energy sources that will will move us down that path of, of reducing emissions. You know, people are wondering whether nuclear energy is an option anymore again on the table and you know, do we think about something like natural gas as a transitional energy source? Each of them has risk and and rewards to them. And I think we just need to be more thoughtful about that. But I think society as a whole needs to recognize that the path we're on is going to lead to the snuffing out life on planet Earth as we know it. And we can't do that. And we need to be thinking about not only our realities today and the price we pay at, a, at, a, at the pump, but we need to be thinking intergenerationally. We need to be thinking about our kids and our grandkids and what is that real cost of that, you know, gallon of gas that we put in our car today. Michael, there's a parallel story in Scotland, which is the story of who is present and who is not and who takes over and who ducks down and who's, do you feel that in particular China, who has taken a leading role on the world stage, is laying low on this one. What what has been China's role leading up to COP? 
Yeah, no, that's a, a good question. Also, it's really not clear. It's hard to look through the opaque lens of China and what their interests are here. And and I think what we're seeing in, in Scotland with who's showing up and who's not showing up is a mirror of what's going on in the world, right? We're in this space right now. A lot of the people that can't come to COP will be people from Africa that don't have vaccinations. They've not had access to vaccinations. So there won't that there's an equity issue there that's big. And then you have the political overlay, which is the tensions between China, the United States, Russia, different countries that are bringing agendas and overlaying those agendas onto the climate agenda. Kerry has been working traveling the globe trying to get people to uh, to show up to make commitments to do all those kinds of things. But the climate game is being played in a much broader game that has uh, less to do around climate and more to do around, you know, issues, fundamental issues of equity, more about resources, access to resources. All of those things are kind of overlapping that. And I, I think that's playing out in, in what we're seeing happening in, in Glasgow. Let me just go deeper into this because it's not only an issue of like the superpowers because it's some of the largest developing countries are not there, at least not there with their leaders. I mean, India, Brazil, Mexico, some of these countries have much less participation. These are the largest developing nations. And why the dichotomy? Yeah, I think I would argue that what we're seeing mirrors what we are seeing in the world, right? So there, I think there's a battle going on right now between democracy and authoritarianism, and that's played out. And that's where you see Bolsonaro in Brazil saying, oh, no, screw that, you know, and vaccinations, I don't believe them, and we're not going to participate in the COP because, you know, our forests are our oil in the future. So I, I think we're seeing kind of tribalism really playing out in a big way. And that's true with the, the with India. That's uh, true with a lot of places that we know in Latin America. It's tied into, unfortunately, this big challenge of climate gets brought into these other battles that are happening that are dragging it down. So we, we lose our focus on the big picture because we're we're battling these other smaller battles. Michael, on the other hand, the U.S. is using this summit to show kind of big muscles in the climate agenda and President Biden will bring a huge top level delegation. And it's a clear sign that the U.S. government is serious about the event. But at the same time, the U.S. is pressuring the Saudis to increase petroleum production. Are you worried about the mixed messages on the U.S. and how this can turn into a political polarization and animosity in the country? And, and then will the U.S., and that's a million-dollar question as well, within its polarized politics, get their act together and comply with their pledges? Yeah, so you're right that the U.S. is, is going to Glasgow, is in Glasgow with a very big delegation, uh, which I think is a real strong signal of the commitment of leadership from the Biden administration. You know, we just are back at the table from being out of the game in the last administration. So that that's a huge signal. And we are still the most important. The U.S. is still the most important country when you think about, you know, commitments and driving, driving the agenda globally. So that's really important. You know, Kerry has been working, traveling the globe and Saudi Arabia made a commitment to be net zero by 2050. Those are the kinds of signals that are systemic signals that I look for. I think what what I would worry more about is, you know, our ability to move our agenda forward 
with domestic support. So right now it's the infrastructure bill, the reconciliation bill. Those need to be moved forward for Biden and the U.S. administration have the legitimacy to say, look what we're doing, follow our lead. That's that's what I really worry about. Speaking of the table, and that's an analogy we've used a lot in Altamar, Europe kind of took advantage of the vacuum in the past few years in the global table. And in this area in particular has taken a strong position and seeks to be the kind of the de facto leader of these talks and come out of it as the agenda setter. Will the EU or any specific leader in Europe be able to push this event to success? Um, I, I think the thing that I keep thinking about, the analogy I use, is that climate is truly a team sport. You know, everybody has to be in this game. Otherwise, we don't get there. And, you know, it's in, it's in Glasgow. It's in the UK. Uh, so, so Boris Johnson has been uh, very active I think sending a set of signals that are hard to understand sometimes and may be confusing. So, so they are, and Europe is moving forward. Europe is absolutely a leader in so many of these aspects in terms of policies and investments and, and commitment from its populace around these issues. But I don't think that that's, I don't think that any European country, including a UK, could really drive this leadership. I think it needs to be a coalition Uh, of the willing that are going to be able to do that. The United States absolutely needs to be at that table, uh, along with other countries, as you said, you know, China, India, Brazil. We need to have everybody driving this forward because it really is truly a team sport. Michael, you mentioned earlier a really key question here, which is the funding mechanisms that are going to be able to drive these many proposals into reality, particularly in the developing world. Can you talk a little bit about the public money, such as coming from the World Bank or the Inter-American Development Bank, the African Development Bank, that are going to be shifted into climate-focused projects. But also, is private money increasingly available on the market to finance a lot of these projects? And again, particularly in the developing world. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, that's obviously where we focus a lot of our attention and, and our energy. And I, and I think there is you know, again, it's a it's a mountain that we have to get over, which is the legacy of, you know, the fact that the developed world has created this emissions problem, the climate problem, with our activity over the last hundred years. And yet right now we're asking developing countries to bypass their opportunity to develop, to be able to help us address the issues, the, the problem that we created, frankly. But I do think there's a lot of movement in that space. I see it in the in the area that we work, which is really in uh, in forests and land use and and nature based solutions, where there will there's going to be a, a hundred billion dollar commitment that will be tabled at the COP that includes the U.S., Norway, Germany, the U.K. There's a an avenue which is what we would call bilateral support. These are individual countries that pledge aid through their bilateral mechanisms. The multilaterals that you're talking about, Peter, I think are becoming, I mean, I think they're, they want to have a stronger role, but I think they're, they're less relevant on this landscape than they would have been 30 years ago in terms of their impacts. Obviously, there's, there's, there's interest from, from the banks to be able to play more of a role in addressing climate. I just don't know how impactful they will be in this day and age in terms of their their sway on these governments but but the private sector is 
becoming a much more important player and and there's more and more opportunity and revenue flowing to these things. You think about carbon markets and the the tsunami of investments around carbon markets that are that are not waiting for governments to to set the rules. They're saying we're 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 going there now and and big companies, you know, the Amazons of the world, the Microsofts of the world along with a lot of the other companies are are stepping forward and saying we want to we want to become net zero. We want to we want to invest in developing countries and and uh, we want to be able to invest in opportunities for for improving the livelihoods of folks in those countries. So I think the private sector is going to is really becoming the leader here. And Michael, there's a lot of conversation about the youth's involvement when it comes to climate. The very first youth conference ahead of a COP meeting was held earlier in October in Milan and. You know, is this just a marketing push by world leaders and by by countries, or are youth actually influential? I mean, what's your what's your take on that? Yeah, I think you know, and this has been a this people have in, in my field have always have said, oh, "Are you optimistic? You know, what are you optimistic about?" And and we all go back to the next generation after us. But I do think that's real, and and I think they are some of that generation that are not sitting there on their phones all the time are thinking about these issues and they're working and and building the kind of the groundswell of support around these. Think about, for instance, in our lifetimes, recycling. And, and I remember so vividly the kind of the turning point there where it wasn't the older generation, but it was the youth that said, dad and mom, we need to recycle. And that just changed. So it's a great example of how, you know, change can come from youth in some ways. But I I also worry that the issues are so immense that I know many folks who worry that their kids are kind of overwhelmed by it. And so what's critical is to find ways that the youth can actually act, you know, that they can take us, they, they don't say, oh, wow, the word, we're doomed, the world's coming to an end, I'm not going to have any children. But they can say, listen, there are things I can absolutely do now. I can go out and I can plant trees. I can I can kick the habit of plastic. I can do all of these kinds of things. So, so I'm very, I'm focused and hopeful that this next generation are going to be able to lead us out of the problems that we've created. But I want to make sure that they feel enabled to be able to do that and that they're not completely overwhelmed by the the, the doomsday scenarios that are, that are also very real, but are hard for nine-year-old or a 13-year-old to kind of grapple with. Very briefly, Michael, we're, we could stay here all day, but we're running out of time. Optimistic or pessimistic about this meeting? And what do you think will be the main takeaway? Yeah, I'm I'm optimistic. You know, I'm optimistic. I'm excited because we can get together again. You know, I, I mentioned earlier, it's a team sport. If we can't be together, we're not going to be able to to solve climate change. So we need to be huddling together. We need to have that that sort of magic that comes out of, you know, people gathering together and thinking creatively and coming up with ideas that they wouldn't be able to do in their own, you know, on Zoom, for instance. So I'm optimistic about that. I think that the real, for me, the takeaways again are, are one that we need to ramp up the scale of our response. We can't be thinking about creating pilots or moving slowly in this direction. We just, we need to go from zero to a hundred as quickly as possible. And then again, sort of the pace, Peter, you brought this up earlier, and this has been something that's been, you know, I've worried about this for 
three generations is that we are we have a set of institutions and a and a way of thinking as humans that that is cautious right so we go a little bit farther we take little bitty steps and i think we have to we have to really pick up the pace and hopefully those are going to be really strong take-home messages from gathering in Glasgow. But I, I think just being able to be together is going to be really important. And again, there'll be magic that will come out of that that we have no idea what it will be yet. Michael, you and I met when we were eight or nine years old and our parents were friends. So I'm sure they'll be very happy that we're doing this together many years later. Michael Jenkins, president of Forest Trends, thank you for joining us on Altamar. Thank you. So guys, this was a great conversation. I've been so pessimistic about this summit and I'm summit skeptic in in general. But I do believe that um, after listening to Michael, there's some good news in the horizon. And at least, of course, like what he said is meeting and the concept of magic. Maybe I was too easily persuaded and I'm being too optimistic this time, but I do believe that there are good things that are coming out of this. And Muni, I actually agree with your optimism. And I think the only way forward on changing something when it comes to climate is the youth. And so I think this first conference um, that was held in Milan earlier and, and prior to COP26 is really important. And I think the youth is the only chance we have of moving this forward. Okay, so I guess I have to take the pessimist point of view, which I'm not really a pessimist, but I just think we live in a time of such fractured divisions and polarizations. I am petrified by what springtime will bring when we have to go through these massive, massive increases in energy prices. And I just can see Donald Trump and others saying, see, this is what you get for fooling around with climate change. All you get is sort of the worst place and poor people taking the brunt of the suffering. And I, I'm just petrified by that. So thank you for that downer. I don't know. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm going to leave it at that downer and you can listen to Altamar whenever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. See you next time on Altamar. Altamar.